What to a Slave is the 4th of July by Frederick Douglass, Part 3, July 1852. Religious Liberty takes this law to be one of the grossest infringements on Christian liberty. And if the churches and ministers of our country were not stupidly blind or most wickedly indifferent, they too would so regard it. At the very moment that they are thanking God for the enjoyment of civil and religious liberty and for the right to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience, they are utterly silenced in respect to the law which robs religion of its chief significance and makes it utterly worthless to the world lying in wickedness. Did this law concern the mint and anise and cumin? abridge the right to sing psalms, to partake of the sacrament, or to engage in any of the ceremonies of religion. It would be smitten by the thunder of a thousand pulpits. A general shout would go up from the church demanding repeal, repeal, instant repeal. And it would go hard with that politician who presumed to solicit the votes of the people without inscribing this motto on his banner. Further, if this demand were not compiled with another Scotland, would be added to the history of religious liberty, and the stern old covenanters would be thrown into the shade. A John Knox would be seen at every church door and heard from every pulpit, and Fillmore would have no more quarter than was shown by Knox to the beautiful but treacherous Queen Mary of Scotland. The fact that the church of our country, with fractional exceptions, does not esteem the fugitive slave law as a declaration of war against religious liberty implies that the church regard religion simply as a form of worship, an empty ceremony, and not a vital principle, requiring active benevolence, justice, love, and goodwill towards man. It esteems sacrifice above mercy, psalm singing above right doing, solemn meetings above practical righteousness, a worship that can be conducted by persons who refuse to give shelter to the houseless, to give bread to the hungry, clothing to the naked, and who enjoy obedience to the law forbidding these acts of mercy is a curse, not a blessing to mankind. The Bible addresses all such persons as scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites who pay tithes of mint, anise, and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, the church responsible. But the church of this country is not only indifferent to the wrongs of the slaves, it actually takes sides with the oppressors. It has made itself the bulwark of American slavery and the shield of American slave hunters. Many of its eloquent divines who stand as the very lights of the church have shamelessly given the sanctions of religion and the Bible to the whole slave system. They have taught that men may properly be a slave. That the relation of master and slave is ordained of God. That to send back an escaped bondman to his master is clearly the duty of all of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this horrible blasphemy pawned off upon the world of Christianity. For my part, I would say, welcome infidelity, welcome atheism, welcome anything in the presence of the gospel as preached by those divines. 
they convert the very name of religion into the engine of tyranny and barbarous cruelty and serve to confirm more infidels. In this age, then all infidel writings of Thomas Paine, Voltaire, and Bolingbroke put together have done. These ministers make religion a cold and flintly-hearted thing, having neither principle of right action nor bowels of compassion. They strip the love of God of its beauty and leave the throng of religion a huge, horrible, repulsive form. It is a religion for oppressors, tyrants, man-stealers, and thugs. It is not that pure and undefiled religion, which is from above and which is first pure, then peaceable, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. But a religion which favors the rich against the poor, which exalts the proud above the humble, which divides mankind into two classes, tyrants and slaves, which says to man in chains, stay there, and to the oppressor, press on. It is a religion which may be professed and enjoyed by all the robbers and enslavers of mankind. It makes God a respected person, denies his fatherhood of the race, and tramples in the dust the great truths of the brotherhood of man. All this we affirm to be true of a popular church and the popular worship of our land and nation. A religion, a church, and a worship which, on the authority of inspired wisdom, we pronounce to be an abomination in the sight of God. In the language of Isaiah, the American church might be well addressed. Bring no more vain ablations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble to me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yeah, when ye make merry many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge for the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Isaiah 1, 12 through 17. The American church is guilty when viewed in connection with what it is doing to uphold slavery, but it is superlatively guilty when viewed in connection with its ability to abolish slavery. The sin of which it is guilty is one of omission as well as of commission. Albert Barnes but uttered what the common sense of every man at all observant of the actual state of this case will receive as truth when he declared that there is no power out of the church that could sustain slavery an hour if it were not sustained in it. Let the religious press, the pulpit, the Sunday school, the conference meeting, the great ecclesiastical, missionary, Bible, and track associations of the land array their immense powers against slavery and slaveholding, and the whole system of crime and blood would be scattered to the winds. And that they do not do this involves them in the most awful responsibility of which the mind can conceive in persecuting the anti-slavery enterprise. We have been asked to spare the church, to spare the ministry. But how, we ask, 
could such a thing be done. We are met on the threshold of our efforts for the redemption of the slave by the church and ministry of the country in battle arrayed against us. And we are compelled to fight or flee. From what quarter, I beg to know, has preceded a fire so deadly upon our ranks during the last two years as from the northern pulpit. As the champions of oppressors, the chosen men of American theology have appeared men honored for their so-called piety and their real learning, the lords of Buffalo's, the Springs of New York, the Lathrops of Auburn, the Coxes and Spencers of Brooklyn, the Gannats and Sharps of Boston, the Deweys of Washington and other great religious lights of the land have in uttered denial of the authority of him by whom the professed he called to the ministry, deliberately taught us against the example of the Hebrews and against the remonstrance of the apostles. They teach that we ought to obey man's law before the law of God. My spirit wearies of such blasphemy and how much men can be supported as the standing type and representatives of Jesus Christ is a mystery which I leave others to penetrate. In speaking of the American church, however, let it be distinctly understood that I mean the great mass of the religious organizations of our land. There are exceptions, and I thank God that there are. Noblemen may be found scattered all over these northern states, of whom Henry Ward Beecher of Brooklyn, Samuel J. May of Syracuse, and my esteemed friend on the platform are shining examples. And let me say further that upon these men lies the duty to inspire our ranks with high religious faith and zeal and to cheer us on in the great mission of the slave's redemption from his chains. Religion in England and Religion in America one is struck with the difference between the attitude of the American church towards the anti-slavery movement and that occupied by the churches in England towards a similar movement in that country. There, the church, true to its mission of ameliorating, elevating, and improving the conditions of mankind, came forward promptly, bound up the wounds of the West Indies slave, and restored him to his liberty. There, the question of emancipation was a highly religious question. It was demanded in the name of humanity and according to the law of the living God. The Sharps, the Clarksons, the Wilberforces, the Buxtons, Bruchelles, and the Nibs were alike famous for their piety and for their philanthropy. The anti-slavery movement there was not an anti-church movement for the reason that the church took its full share in prosecuting the movement and the anti-slavery movement in this country will cease to be an anti-church movement when the church of this country shall assume its favorable instead of instead or a hostile position towards that movement. Americans, your Republican politics, not less than your Republican religion, are flagrantly inconsistent. You boast of your love of liberty, your superior civilization, and your pure Christianity, while the whole political power of the nation, as embodied in the two great political parties, is solemnly pledged to support and perpetuate the enslavement of three millions of your countrymen.
You hurl your anathemas at the crowded, headed tyrants of Russia and Australia and pride yourselves on your democratic institutions while you yourselves consent to the mere tools and bodyguards of the tyrants of Virginia and Carolina. You invite to your shores fugitives of oppression from abroad, honor them with banquets, greet them with ovations, cheer them, toast them, salute them, protect them, and pour out your money to them like water. But the fugitives from your own land, you advertise, hunt, arrest, shoot, and kill. You glory in your refinement and your universal education, yet you maintain a system as barbarous and dreadful as ever stained the character of a nation. A system begun in invariance, supported in pride, and perpetuated in cruelty. You shed tears over fallen Hungarian and make the sad story of her wrongs the theme of your poets, statesmen, and orators till your gallant sons are ready to fly to arms to vindicate her cause against her oppressors. But in regard to the 10,000 wrongs of the American slave, you would enforce the strictest silence and would hail him as an enemy of the nation who dares to make those wrongs the subject of public discourse. You are all on fire at the mention of liberty for France or for Ireland, but are as cold as an iceberg at the thought of liberty for an enslaved of America. You discourse eloquently on the dignity of labor, yet you sustain a system which in its very essence cast a stigma upon labor. You can bare your bosoms to the storm of British artillery to throw off a three-penny tax on tea and yet wring the last hard-earned farthing from the grasp of the black labors of your country. You profess to believe that of one blood God made all nations of men to dwell on the face of all of the earth and have commanded all men everywhere to love one another. Yet you notoriously hate and glory in your hatred. All men whose skin are not colored like your own. You declare before the world and are understood by the world to declare that you hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet you hold securely in the bondage which, according to your own Thomas Jefferson, is worse than the ages of that which your fathers rose in rebellion to oppose, a seventh part of the inhabitants of your country. Fellow citizens, I will not enlarge further on your national inconsistencies. The existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as a base pretense, and your Christianity as a lie. It destroys your moral power abroad. It corrupts your politicians at home. It saps the foundation of religion. It makes your name a hissing and a byword to the mocking earth. It is the antagonistic force of your government, the only thing that seriously disturbs and endangers your union. It fetters your progress. It is the enemy of improvement, the deadly foe of education. It fosters pride. It breeds insolence. It promotes vice. It shelters crime. It is a curse to the earth that supports it, and yet you cling to it as if it were the sheet anchor of your hopes. Oh, be warned. 
Be warned, a horrible reptile is coiled up in your nation's bosom. The venomous creature is nursing at the tender breast of your youthful republic. For the love of God, tear away and fling from you the hideous monster and let the weight of 20 millions crush and destroy it forever. Lastly, the Constitution. But it is answered in reply to all this that precisely what I have now denounced is, in fact, guaranteed and sanctioned by the Constitution of the United States, that the right to hold and to hunt slave is a part of that Constitution framed by the illustrious fathers of this republic. Then I dare to affirm, notwithstanding all I have said before, your father stooped baselessly stoop to palter with us in a double sense and keep the word of promise to the ear but break it to the heart and instead of being the honest men and i have before declared them to be they were the various impostors that ever practice on mankind this is the inevitable conclusion, and from it there is no escape. But I differ from those who charge this baseness on the framers of the Constitution of the United States. It is a slander upon their memory, at least so I believe. There is no time now to argue the constitutional questions at length, nor had I the ability to discuss it as to be discussed. The subject has been handled with masterly, powered by Lysander Spooner, Esquire, by William Goodell, by Samuel E. Sewell, Esquire, and last, though not least, by Garrett Smith, Esquire. These gentlemen have, as I think, fully and clearly vindicated the Constitution from any design to support slavery for an hour. Fellow citizens, there is no matter in respect to which the people of the North have allowed themselves to be ruinously imposed upon as that of the pro-slavery character of the Constitution. In that instrument, I hold there is neither warrant, license, nor sanction for the hateful thing, but interpreted as it ought to be interpreted. The Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Read its preamble. Consider its purpose. Is slavery among them? Is it at the gateway or is it in the temple? It is neither. While I do not intend to argue this question on the present occasion, let me ask if it be not somewhat singular that if the Constitution were intended to be, be its framers and adopters, a slave holding instrument, why neither slavery, slave holding, nor slave can anywhere be found in it. What would be the thought of an instrument drawn up, legally drawn up for the purpose of entitling the city of Rochester to a track of land in which no mention of land was made? Now there are certain rules of interpretation for the proper understanding of all legal instruments. These rules are well established. They are plain, common sense rules, such as you and me and all of us can understand and apply without having passed years in the study of law. I scout the idea that the question of the constitutionality or unconstitutionality of slavery is not a question for the people. I hold that every American citizen has a right to form an opinion of the Constitution and to propagate that opinion and to use all honorable means to make his opinion the prevailing one. Without this right, the liberty of an American citizen would be as insecure as that of a Frenchman.
Ex-Vice President Dallas tells us that the Constitution is an object to which no American mind can be too attentive and no American heart too devoted. He further says the Constitution, in its words, is plain and intelligible and is meant for the homebred, unsophisticated understandings of our fellow citizens. Senator Berrien told us that the Constitution is the fundamental law that which controls all others. The Charter of Our Liberties, which every citizen has a personal interest in understanding thoroughly. The testimony of Senator Breeze, Lewis Cass, and many others that might be named, who are everywhere esteemed as sound lawyers, so regard the Constitution. I take it, therefore, that it is not presumptuous in the private citizens to form an opinion of that instrument. Now take the Constitution according to its plain reading, and I defy the presentation of a single pro-slavery clause in it. On the other hand, it will be found to contain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. I have detailed my audience entirely too long already. At some future period, I will gladly avail myself of an opportunity to give this subject a full and fair discussion. Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. I therefore leave off where I began, with hope, while drawing encouragement from the Declaration of the Independence, the great principle it contains, and the genius of American institution. My spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. Nations do not now stand in the same relations to each other that they did ages ago. No nation can now shut itself up from the surrounding world and trot around in the same old paths of its fathers without interference. The time was when such could be done. Long-established customs of hurtful character could formerly fence themselves in and do their evil work with social impunity. Knowledge was then confined and enjoyed by the privileged few, and the multitude walked on in mental darkness. But a chain has now come over the affairs of mankind. Walled cities and empires have become unfashionable. The arm of commerce has borne away the gates of a strong city. Intelligence is penetrating the darkest corners of the globe. It makes its pathway over and under the sea, as well as on the earth. Wind, steam, and lightning are its chartered agents. Oceans no longer divide, but link nations together. From Boston to London is now a holiday excursion. Space is comparatively annihilated. Thoughts expressed on one side of the Atlantic are distinctly heard on the other. The far off and the almost fabulous Pacific rose in grandeur at our feet. The celestial empire, the mystery of ages, is being solved. The fiat of the Almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. No abuse, no outrage, whether it's taste, sports, or a variance, can now hide itself from the all-pervading light. The iron shoe and crippled foot of China must be seen in contrast with nature. Africa must rise and put on her yet unwoven garment. Ethiopia shall stretch out her hand unto God.
in the fervent aspirations of William Lloyd Garrison, I say, and that every heart join in saying it. Godspeed the year of Jubilee, the wide world over. When form their galling chain set free, the oppressed shall vilely bend the knee. And where the yoke of tyranny, like brutes no more, the year will come and freedom's reign to man has plunder rights again. Restore, Godspeed, the day when human blood shall cease to flow, and every clime be understood the claims of human brotherhood, and each return to evil, good, not blow for blow. That day will come our feuds to end and change into a faithful friend. Each foe, Godspeed, the hour, the glorious hour, when none on earth shall exercise a lordly power, nor a tyrant's present cower, but all the manhood stature tower by equal birth. That hour will come to each to all, and from his prison house the thrall. Go forth until that year, day, hour, arrive with head and heart, and hand I'll strive to break the rod and rend the grave, the spoiler of the prey deprived. So witness heaven, and never from the chosen post, whatever pearl or the cost be driven. What to a Slave is the Fourth of July by Frederick Douglass. <laughs>